In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective tonight. We are going to take it uh, a little bit the opposite direction than we did last time where we were doing some of the greatest movies ever made to some of the not-so-greatest movies ever made in a listener-recommended movie action point by that jackass, Johnny Knoxville. Uh, We do have a guest tonight, but we will introduce him on the Last Nerds portion of the show, which we will get to in just a moment. But uh, anything for the actual anarchy audience Robert, on this 106th episode that has show notes and more at actualanarchy.com slash 106. 106, what's up? Got my kitty cat on the mic. She's not happy at all to be here. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to be here. We're going to talk about a terrible movie. Why not? Well, it's got that's good stuff in it. It's got, got some good interesting points. That's what we're here for. We're here, we're here for the interesting points, and I'm, I'm very excited about it. And so uh, let's get into that last night's portion of the show, shall we? If you insist. Hey everyone, it's Daniel and Robert the Last Nighters, and we are back at it again doing another show for you. This is going to be episode 49, and The Last Nighters is a member of the Launchpad Media, so you can find this show and more other great shows at thelaunchpadmedia.com. The show notes for this will be at lastnighters.com slash 49. So, uh, Robert, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, Daniel. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm a big fan. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm a big fan of you and your fine work. We are talking about Action Point, which is uh, not a great movie, not even a good movie, but it's got some good, good content uh, worthy of discussion. And the listener who suggested it is actually here with us uh, tonight. His name is Bryce, and uh, say hello, Bryce. How are you, sir? Hey, how are you guys doing? We're doing well. We're, we're happy to have you here. And, and uh, this this movie has a very interesting and uh, fun premise. I don't know if the execution was, was all that, but <laughs> yeah. uh, it should give us plenty to talk about tonight. Uh, yeah, I like what you guys are doing. It's a pretty interesting idea just to uh, review movies and stuff. It's not really from an <laughs> anarchy perspective. It seems like a natural fit. I mean, we're now anarchists and we watch movies and you can't not see it once you flip that switch. So it seemed like we'd have lots of content to talk about. Yeah, I know for some, the downside is some of the uh, movies I remember watching, like before I, because before I became a libertarian, I was just random apolitical. I didn't really care about anything. And now I think about some of the other movies, I'm just like, well, I kind of ruined it though, <laughs> because <laughs> you see all these things like, oh, that's all wrong. But <laughs> oh yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah, it's ruined so many movies for us. But like Robert said, you know, we were watching movies anyway, and we were talking about them and doing movie quotes anyway, at least growing up, and so it just seemed like a natural fit. And then the other bonus, at least from my perspective, is we can have conversations about something instead of between us like we're not having the argument we're talking about something else and when we have guests you know we're not debating them we're talking about something and it's like 
I don't know. It just seems like it, it makes it easier to have a conversation and get the nuance. Yeah, I can see that working. Yeah, because you're not defending yourself necessarily. You're talking about this thing that's over here. It takes the right. pressure off. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's mostly opinion anyway. I mean, we try to bring you know, some philosophy to it and some economics to it. But I mean, we're, we're by no means like, you know, expert level on any of this stuff. I and mean, we, we've thought about it a lot and I've done a fair amount of reading and, and whatnot, but there's always more to learn. Yeah. I'm still, I, I kind of, I don't know, <laughs> like I became a libertarian back probably around 17 or, well, I don't know why I said that, uh, about 2007, kind of at the same time as the Ron Paul movement, but not really through the Ron Paul movement. I didn't really discover Ron Paul until like years later. <laughs> mm. uh, what got you? Uh, it was kind of a mixture of things like, between getting screwed over by the government because I was just kind of apolitical at first. And then I think that that one world's smallest political quiz was part of it. And I ended up the very first time I voted libertarian, I voted for Bob Barr back in the day, <laughs> which is kind of weird. <laughs> but uh, yeah, before that, I was kind of my the very first time I voted, I voted Democrat because that's what my dad wanted me to vote for. I didn't really care. I guess I kind of had some leftist tendencies, like, but whatever. <laughs> uh, but now I got, I'm like constantly reading and listening to podcasts all the time these days. It's like my main hobby, pretty much. <laughs> Action point. Um, you you mentioned that it's a bit of a mixed bag, but it's got some pretty libertarianish points in it, and it's essentially a guy who's running a sort of amusement park, but he's fighting regulations and litigiousness, political correctness, uh, and he's all about personal responsibility. But it's kind of wrapped up in a story about nothing with a very flimsy plot. But uh, before we get too much further, I'm going to read the uh, Google information, and then we will kick the show off in earnest. So Action Point came out 2018. It's an adventure slash comedy, one hour, 25 minutes, five out of 10 on the IMDb. 14% Rotten Tomatoes, so I do stand corrected. Uh, when we were talking about The Lord of the Rings on the last episode, I, I thought that it was a 15% uh, Rotten Tomatoes rating. Uh, it says 0.5 out of 5 rating on IndieWire.com, so I don't know if they can go any lower, lower than that. Uh, however, 82% of Google users like it. So here is the uh, Google summary. DC, and that's the name of the Johnny Knoxville character, uh, DC is the crackpot owner of Action Point, a low-rent, out-of-control amusement park where the rides are designed with minimum safety for maximum fun. Just as his estranged daughter, Boogie, comes to visit, a corporate megapark opens nearby and jeopardizes the future of Action Point. To save his beloved park and his relationship with Boogie, DC and his loony crew of misfits must risk everything to pull out all the stops and save the day. came out on June 1st, 2018, directed by Tim Kirby, starring the aforementioned Johnny Knoxville and uh, one of his jackass cohorts, um... Chris Pontius, I believe. Uh, Robert, uh, your thoughts on the Google description thus far? Well, I I haven't really followed Johnny Knoxville's career. I remember back in the Jackass days, the, those were like what two thousand ish when like MTV still was a thing, and people would watch MTV and watch Jackass, and they had those, and then they came out with those movies, the Jackass movies. And I want to say that those were just series of skits and sketches where people got hit in the balls and punched in the face and hit by things and I remember one sketch where a guy had a toy car up his butt but i don't remember like them trying to make real movies with plots and it kind of shows with this movie i don't know if in the, in the 20 years since they just haven't learned about movies and how to make them and it seems like they're kind of trying to make a movie but then they're also falling back on that jackass type humor and i just don't know it's like Johnny Knoxville is like a 45, 50-year-old man, or at least he looks it in this movie. And a guy like that just getting hit in the balls. I think it works when there's like a bunch of guys standing around doing dumb stuff and like laughing at each other. But in this movie, when the gags would happen, I, I was just watching it stone-faced. None of them landed for me. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, decent summary. And I would definitely agree. Johnny Knoxville looks old in this movie and not in the like uh, bad grandpa old. He just looks plain old. Well, when he had the makeup on for part of it when he's playing the grandpa, but then when he played young himself, it was like, well, they didn't really add a whole lot of makeup. I don't know. <laughs> didn't didn't I don't have mean, to spend too much time in the chair on that one. I don't mean to trash the guy. I mean, good on him. He's, you know, doing his thing, making a lot of money, being famous and whatnot, but years haven't been too kind. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's had uh, some hard living. And, and I mentioned Bad Grandpa because he actually did do that makeup uh, for two other entire movies where he was uh, an old man. Um, doing crazy stunts, jackass style, but as an old man, so it would like really d 
disturb people or they'd be very surprised by him, you know, doing somewhat active uh, stunt work. Yeah, and I didn't see those movies, but I assume they were kind of done in like an Ollie G style where he would dress up as a bad grandpa and then go out into the world with real people reacting to his antics as opposed to this being a full on scripted affair. Right. So it was like that bridge between what they were doing in Jackass, where they were just being jackasses out with real people uh, and doing stunts to this bad grandpa thing where they're sort of trying to fit in a bit of a, a candid camera type like trickery, like fooling people a little bit to this action point where they're trying to film a, or trying to fit a movie around some stunt work that, like you said, it's like the pratfalls and the stunts just fall flat, but he just like falls off a ramp or somebody gets hit in the balls or somebody falls down. And that's kind of like all that happens. Uh, so that part of it, I'm not super crazed about. But uh, Bryce, uh, your, your take on uh, the Google description, what we said so far, and is there anything redeeming from the filmmaking uh, before we dive into the real juicy bits of this thing? Uh, yeah, overall, it was kind of a, it wasn't really that great of a movie, but uh, I noticed some random points in it that were worth noting. And I remember, like, I grew up in the 90s, so I was into skateboarding and stuff like that. I kind of followed some of the Jack's, Jackass stuff. Um, I wasn't really a big fan of it, but it was kind of interesting. It was just something different for the time, I guess. But, uh yeah, it was overall it wasn't really that great of a movie, but you know. <laughs> well, what was the key thing for you that you saw it and you're like, okay, this is a point worth discussing. Like this is this is why they should do this on the show. Oh, okay. Well, there's I noticed I kind of just watched it on a whim. I wasn't really I wanted to see it in theater just because, but I then then when I actually started watching it on DVD, I kind of noticed there was this like it was this guy with his property and he had to fight all these regulations and stuff and then i started paying attention more to it and like some other random things started popping out it was almost like this uh and like for a new liberty um where the screaming in the theater scenario it kind of reminded me of like if someone actually made <laughs> a theater where the point was to scream in the theater <laughs> <laughs> It was kind of some sort of scenario like that. Right, uh, because that's always given as a limitation on uh, freedom of speech, right, in normie terms. But the real issue is a property issue, right? People yeah. have purchased tickets for a performance on in somebody's theater who owns it, and, and the contractual relationship is such that they're there for an event that does not involve somebody yelling fire in the crowded theater or screaming or whatever. And so anything outside of that expectation or that contractual, you know, this is what we're here for, uh, is a property rights violation and not you, you can you can prevent that or you can stop that or uh, there are repercussions to it, not limiting that person's freedom of speech, but because they're violating the property and the agreement on being in the, within those premises uh, for being there. Yeah. All right. That's just a tangent. I didn't mean to throw off you, <laughs> throw you uh, off there, but, uh, uh, you were going to say something else. Um, yeah, I was just thinking that it was like, like, well, at some point in the movie, they basically boycott their own park for publicity reasons, but they go out and advertise it as the super dangerous thing. It's like, uh, <laughs> it's like they have their own private property, but they're advertising it as this specific thing that, uh, you don't really have to go to if you don't want, but uh, if you do like it, you can go to it and be all chaotic or whatnot. <laughs> it kind of yeah. had this sense of like where it made things look like it was chaotic, like that kind of superficial type of anarchy. But that, at the same time, it kind of made it look like it was still a good thing, even though it was chaotic. I thought <laughs> yeah. that was interesting. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And I actually kind of want to dive into this point a little bit and uh, I'll dish it over to Robert in a moment. But uh, the the whole point of them doing the boycott was because a competitor had entered the scene and they were losing business to the competitor. And the competitor was, you know, corporate, you know, backed with a lot more money. They had nicer rides and, and better equipment, more safety. So they went the opposite direction. They're like, OK, now that we have a competitor on the scene, we need to differentiate our product and be niched, be very different from them and get the thrill seekers in here. So if they're going to go full safety, we're going to go full, you know, cut loose on the brakes make everything super dangerous, you know, so we're going to be competitively advantaged compared to them. And uh, the, the concept of the boycott, and this is the point I want, I want Robert to take off on because I know he's got a five or ten minute rant in him. Uh, and the left doesn't seem to have figured this out. But when you boycott something, you give them free advertising. And that's what Johnny Knoxville is, is 
banking on in this. He's like, if we get enough attention protesting, that just gives us free publicity. People are going to want to check it out. People are going to be interested in it. You're drawing attention to something that uh, when when people generally do these boycotts, they're trying to say, oh, they're doing something bad. Therefore, this is the reaction. But all it does is prop them up and help them out. Robert, take it away. It really does. It props them out. And I thought it was a fairly genius point on his behalf to work with what he had. So he didn't have the money for the advertising, but he did have an outrage mob that he can drum up by talking about his park as being a bad thing. Now, the interesting thing about this entire movie for me is, would this kind of place exist and should a place like this exist? And would it exist in like an Ancapistan type of situation? And the whole time I was watching it, I was like, why aren't there an army of lawyers sitting at the gates of this place? And how could this place exist from the get go, from the jump that just wouldn't exist? And there would be a million, you know, accident ambulance chasers just waiting to prey on anybody jumping out of there. But these kinds of, um, you know, dangerous experiences that are advertised as such, they don't promise any kind of safety. These kind of dangerous experiences exist all over the place. Um, you could go skydiving. They don't promise any kind of security. And they can say, well, we'll take all the precautions we can, but you could die. Bungee jumping, whitewater rafting. Um, any number of zip lining, all these places, they all require you to sign a waiver. And why Johnny Knoxville didn't require any one of his patrons to sign a waiver was beyond me. Um, that just seemed like a normal thing that everybody would have and that a, a normal thing that even a dummy like Johnny Knoxville would come up, or at least his character would come up with, or an, his entire team. I mean, he had a couple of smart people in that group. It could have come up with something like that. Uh, it seems like a pretty standard thing. But for sure, this is all about, I mean, what really attracted me when it first came on was Johnny Knoxville says something like, you know, we believed in personal responsibility. And when you did something dumb and you hurt yourself, you dusted yourself off and then you bragged about it to your buddies. And that really was like the feeling growing up, I want to say in the 80s. And then I think we've definitely lost that. Whenever someone kid skins their knee now, it's like, well, whose fault is it? Who can we blame? And it seems like something's been lost in the society that we live in these days. Yeah. Who who, who can we sue? <laughs> Which is just crazy, you know? And, and I, I agree when, when uh, I grew up, obviously, with you, uh, you were a little bit older. And so I always felt like I was hanging with the cool kids. But you I mean, we could run around town anywhere we we could go down to the frog pond we could walk downtown we could go all the way out to your cousin's place you know a few miles away and it seems like we were doing that at what 12 years old 14 years old maybe even younger i don't think that uh, as soon as we got bikes yeah and I, I don't i don't know if you can even do that anymore like when my wife and i first moved out to uh an island a couple of years ago we remember driving by and seeing young kids on a bike like kind of on the highway and we we're like what are they doing out here that doesn't seem safe. What's going on here? Why aren't they in school? <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. And uh, yeah. I don't know. It's, it, it certainly seems like personal responsibility is sort of coupled with that uh, helicopter parenting type thing and, and that people are less willing to kind of take on risks. And I think it's just that evolution towards where we are today with everyone needs safe spaces and milk and cookies and, you know, teddy bears or whatever to to be able to handle like speech uh from people who they disagree with or they don't even know if they disagree with they just hear that they're bad and therefore they must be evil yeah it's also coupled with this idea that well it's not an idea it's the reality that we are kind of in an information overload stage where you hear all this bad news all the time and you think it's a really dangerous world we live in where in actuality crime is actually going down just it's on a downward slope for a long time now and it's actually, it was more dangerous back in the 80s, but you just didn't hear about it. You had the nightly news that you might watch maybe, and there were a few national stories on it. And then you'd go to the local news and there'd be like, you know, five or six local news stories. But it wasn't, you're not getting news from all over the globe constantly about every terrible thing that's happening. So I think there's this sense that the world is a more dangerous place, even though it's demonstrably not. Right. And I think social media is another thing that kind of amplifies it because now any little thing can blow up and become viral. And then it gets on like the, the national news or propagated out on uh, the, the web services. Like I get little emails 
um, from Yahoo, and I can't believe they're still a thing. Um, but there's always at least one or two stories that are sort of like something you would have never, ever have heard about uh, 20 years ago. But now because somebody recorded it on their phone and then it got hot on Facebook or whatever, now it's like all of a sudden, you know, sent out to a million people. So it, it, it is kind of an interesting phenomenon. And I wonder if, um, if we're not kind of worse off for it, <laughs> if, I, if I'm being honest here. Uh, Bryce, do you have any uh, uh, reflection on any of the stuff that we've said so far? Or do you want to take us in another direction at all? Uh, yeah, mostly I agree with what you guys are saying. Uh, there's this certain thing about like this idea that something like one little tiny incident, incident can happen. And I think when we're paying attention to it, we kind of realize that it's just that one incident, but on more of like a subconscious level when the same incident is being repeated over and over and over on all kinds of different platforms or whatnot, it kind of starts eating away at this idea that these things are happening all the time or whatever. But, but uh, I mean, sometimes we need to just step back and realize, hey, this stuff is not happening all the time. <laughs> but yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where you live and I don't know where, I do know where Daniel lives, but I mean, our neighborhoods are essentially probably as safe as they have been for the past couple of decades. It's not like they've all of a sudden got infested with murders and rapists and pedophiles it's well that's probably what my, still... my neighborhood was founded on actually but <laughs> well, okay, sir. i actually thought about you and your kids and i was like would daniel take his kids to a park like this i don't even know oh dude you've seen my backyard we, we freaking have a park like this and all right so <laughs> a guy i know uh two summers ago had a slide in the backyard and had a had a four-year-old kid who was swimming in a little kiddie pool. And my friend thought that it was a great idea to tell the kid to go up on the slide while they're wet in a bathing suit. And um, let's just say that uh, the kid shot down the slide like a rocket uh, into the gravel uh, landing zone and had um, a condition later <laughs> named blood butt as a result. And uh, that, that, was a, that was a pretty unpleasant <laughs> learning experience that was was an action point uh in personal experience uh yeah i remember having a bunch of stuff like that when i was a kid <laughs> i remember when we first got our pond dug out like it only filled up a little way at first and me and my friends would come over and we'd get the side of the bank all wet and stuff and we'd like dive over the rocks and down the mud <laughs> into the pond <laughs> we'd do all kinds of weird crazy stuff Oh, yeah. Yeah. That reminds me, um, Robert, when we were growing up, there was uh, somebody lived like two or three houses up the hill from you and they had their house and then a driveway and then a hedge going down a slope. And then they had like this lower yard and we would run from their front yard through the driveway and jump over the hedge down the hill and land in the grass below. And I haven't seen it in, you know, probably 20 years, but I wonder how big that hedge is now and, and how big of a hill that was that we were jumping down. Because now that I remember it, I'm like, holy crap, you know, I'm surprised we didn't break our arms or our legs or something. Well, I remember I did. Yeah, I broke my finger one time doing something very similar like that. But I don't remember what exactly you're talking about at all. Um, the funny things about what we remember, what we don't when we we're kids. Uh, but let's talk about the movie just a little bit on this movie podcast about a movie. Yeah, we should probably do that, yeah. <laughs> so I'm wondering, because Johnny Knoxville, he seemed like about the worst father, even though he was like kind of cool and he had this interesting entrepreneurial endeavor. But then he's like, oh, we don't have lumber and we can't afford it. So what are we going to do? Oh, I know. I'm going to take my daughter that I only have with me every once in a while for the summer. And we're going to go break into our rivals and rob the place. What kind of father of the year are you going for, Johnny? You're the hero of the story and you're B&E with your whole crew and your daughter. And I'm like, this is the hero of the movie? Well, don't what, forget what the dog. What lesson are you teaching? Oh, and then the dog too. He brings the whole show. Talk about taking dumb risks, not only being immoral and stealing from people. Yeah, <laughs> that was one of the kind of bad things about the movie. It's definitely no Rothbardian anarchy, but... There's a lot of dirty play back and forth between the two companies, I guess. Yeah, somewhat. But I thought that it, when it first started, like he was going to break in and something bad was going to happen and he was going to learn his lesson and it would be a good teaching moment for his daughter. But there were zero consequences. They just escape, run away. And then they're like, oh, consequence free theft. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't learn any lessons. No character progression, nothing. And then 
just they get away with it and then we move on and we never talk about it again. I think the whole point of that scene was to move the plot along. And, and even though uh, you be- you probably don't even notice it, but this is when he learns that uh, Mick uh, Dickface or whatever, the, the, the villain in this, um, is trying to sell Action Point out beneath him to a developer. And so it just so happens that this guy is at the place he's stealing the lumber from. And he just so happens to be having this conversation at the time that they're in the same you know building or whatever. And it's one of those things that like, you know, it's in there because if they're trying to move the movie along, they're trying to give you the plot points and, you know, tell the story a little bit, but it's so like poorly done that I don't think it even works. Like you have to really be looking for, okay, why did they have this scene in here? And as we do this show, I mean, that's kind of what I do now, right? With every scene, I'm like, okay, why are they doing this? What, why is this here? What's it telling us? How is this advancing the story? Right. And it was strictly to find out that information that they were selling the park. He's trying to sell the park. Right, which but, is like the most ham-fisted way of conveying that information to the audience I can imagine, right? <laughs> well, and you're turning your hero into a villain. If if anybody has any morals, they're watching the movie and they're like, what are my protagonists doing? Having consequence-free theft and we're supposed to like go along on this kind of like heisty type feel and like we're supposed to support these characters and, you know, feel good about them doing this? Yeah, I, I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't feel good about it at all. And that was another thing. I felt like we were supposed to like get to know his Motley gang and like them or whatever, but I, uh, I kept waiting for that connection with them uh, as a viewer, and it never came. But it felt like they were trying to play as if that connection had already been established, you know. So they were like trying to get the payoffs without getting the character development kind of built in uh, in the front end. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, we do get the uh, his cohort, his whatever guy. I don't know the guy that drags the dress up in tight clothing. I don't know what his name is. Oh, Pontius, Chris Pontius. So I think we get a little bit with him and we kind of he kind of endears us to the audience, but only through, you know, some character moments. But the rest of them are fairly cardboardy cut out type. We don't get a whole lot of time with any of them. All, In fact, all the characters are fairly flat. We don't really get a lot of time. They don't really make any interesting decisions. They're just kind of flat, bad people with no development. But, you know, it seemed like somebody it seemed like, a, you know, all those movies back from the 90s and early aughts that were the um, Saturday Night Live movies that were like a sketch turned into a movie. Like, what can we turn this entire idea around into an entire movie and we'll build it around this and they end up being very, you know, one note kind of movies. About 85 minutes too long. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Um, So there was one one, uh, thing that he said and he actually catches himself on it. I actually wrote the note down. Uh, and then he says, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. When he says Honest Engine, I wrote that down. <laughs> and then he, he called himself, I probably can't say that now. And it feels like that was like um, him as a movie maker, as a, as a you know, an actor saying, you know what? I, I realize that I can't do the things I could do five, ten years ago because people get outraged so easily. So I'm going to say this and then I'm immediately going to walk it back and like diffuse it by saying, oh, I probably can't say that now. So it's sort of like they can't get mad at him now they you know they can't like dox him or right no he hung a lantern on it he he did a thing and then he immediately called attention to it and diffused it right and yeah because i saw in the news i I don't know if this was today or yesterday uh i guess kevin hart had been the uh, presenter host at the oscars the last year or two or was going to be this year i i don't read i i haven't watched the oscars in 20 years but and we do a movie show (laughs) ha weird uh anyway um i guess he had made some homophobic jokes on Twitter 10 years ago, five years ago, whatever. People got outraged. And so he tweeted an apology and said, I'm going to step down from being the Oscar host. And honestly, I mean, no one has a clean closet. You know what I mean? Like everyone has done something that is going to have offended somebody at some point. And so we're almost at that point now where nobody can do anything ever in the future because of their past. Yeah, it's... The outrage mob taken to its extreme. I mean, it's actually, you know, social control, which I'm a big fan of, taken to the nth degree. I mean, I think that social control maintains and is responsible for, you know, preventing 99% of all crime. Yeah, but you mean market forces type, like, and probably, I mean, it's, I'm having difficulty with it because the people on the left do this, uh, but I don't, I don't feel like it's, um, well, they, d- they, they strip the context from everything. Right, but but they, they they do this thing like spontaneously almost, but also in unison, and they're calling for government action, or generally speaking, or more government or whatever. But in a way, it is a bit of a market force, right? And um, 
it's almost like I'm kind of searching here, but you know, the mob is kind of full of um, the worst traits of the individuals comprised in the mob. Right. So the, yeah, mo- so the, the mob is denominator. Yeah. So the mob is dumb, right? And the mob doesn't do necessarily like good things. And so even if it's a market, they're collectivizing and they're doing something awful, even though it is sort of on that, that same plane as uh, social ostracism and what we would consider a market force in a voluntary society. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Um, so you have, like you said, a mob mentality. So if you were to speak to each one of those people individually and rationally discuss what you said on Twitter 10 years ago and explained or whatever, I'm sure they'd be perfectly fine or even willing to interact with you or whatever. But when you break everything down and into little tiny sound bites and you strip all context and there's all there is is just outrage. That's all you're going to get. You don't get the nuance. There's just no nuance on the Internet. And it's I, I don't know if the Internet needs to evolve to a point where there's way more nuance. But when you strip the nuance, all people are left with is this idea that, oh, some so and so says this thing that offends me. Therefore, that person's just a terrible human being. And you just, you know, you just assume the worst. At least it seems like the outrage mob left seems to assume the worst. Because once you once you associate like the random person that says a thing you are offended by with like Nazis, like the worst human beings in history, you're eliminating all nuance. I mean, clearly that person is not a Nazi. But if you're equating the Republican right with Nazis, like you've you, you've you've get, you've gone away from all rational discussion and you just have an on off switch of you no know, good or bad. It's like a child. Yeah. Magic land has lost its magic, man. Yeah, I think there's like, it's almost like we're in an awkward stage right now where people aren't really adapting to the changes around them at the right speed, I guess, maybe, I don't know. Uh, Yeah, technology is really rapidly accelerating. Yeah. And we are just smart monkeys trying to make sense of it all. (laughs) Yeah. I'm offended by that, Robert. Good. (laughs) That lumped with, there's probably plenty of misinformation and stuff. It kind of just confuses everything. Well, yeah, I mean, all government schooling is misinformation and most media, entertainment, news information, most of that's all misinformation. I mean, you get it just propagated into you or propagandized into you day and night. And I've had this theory for a long time that people in general have a sense that something's not right in the world, that they can't put their finger on it generally. And I think because it's it's because of what they've been told doesn't jive with how things actually are. It's that Orwellian doublespeak. Like any, anytime the government does something, it's called something else, even though the same action, if you or I would have done it, is theft or violence or whatever. So people see the actions, and even though they're a step or two removed from it, um, they hear the language of how, what it's described and how it's like responsible for the good of goodness and, and, and society itself. And there's a disconnect there. And I think that that is part of like the, the blue pill, if you will of people who don't see it for what it is. They, they have that sense that something's not right, but they're told over and over and over again that this is how it works and, and everything's fine um, and that this isn't actually violence. This is the government doing something. Oh, that isn't theft. That's the government making you pay your fair share for the roads and the libraries and the schools and, and the fire department and all that. Uh, so I, I don't know. I just kind of had this idea that without that, uh, that people would have less of this, like, something's not quite right that they, like I said, can't put their finger on. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. There's, well, uh, like, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> well, this place is a lawless, reckless free-for-all. Uh, so there's one other note I had in here that was kind of interesting. This will bring up another personal story. Uh, but when Boogie, is that, that what he calls her, Boogie, his daughter, uh, yeah. comes to the house that first night, and he says, uh, so there's some hairspray in there, but don't mix it up with the bear spray that's right next to it. And I was like, okay, clearly a bad situation to have those things <laughs> next to each other. Uh, but uh, another personal story is that um, some friends of mine who were not super close anymore, and this is one of the reasons why, uh, had us over. And my daughter was, I think, three years old at the time. And she was she loves flashlights. Like, we've got a bunch of flashlights around here and she likes to play with the flashlights whatever they do dark stormy night the two girls now anyway so there's this flashlight that my daughter sees and she asks the person who owns the house hey can i play with your flashlight i like flashlights and the person says yes sure play with the flashlight and so 
hands the flashlight to a three-year-old. My wife's there like, oh, that's flashlight, whatever. And then she notices like a minute or so into this daughter playing with it. It is not just a flashlight. It is a taser flashlight. <laughs> now, that, that, you know, the whole hairspray, bear spray thing, that just reminded me of that situation because, you know, here's this person, a kid asks for this thing and, and it's your thing. You know it's a weapon, right? You know it's a taser. Here you go. I mean, <laughs> come on, seriously? Yeah, yeah especially with kids. I mean, you got to explain stuff and whatnot. Definitely want to protect them from harm or anything like that. But yeah, and I mean, you know, it's it's a taser meant to like take down a full grown man. So what's it going to do with a three year old? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, Robert, you got any uh, commentary on your side regarding the movie or anything that we've talked about so far? I've got thoughts, Daniel. Thank you for asking me. So I was curious. This place kind of seemed like it was a hangout for teenagers, but some younger kids also, and. It's not like Johnny Knoxville was promising any kind of a, you know, safety thing. I don't know if he had like warnings posted up in front of his rides or anything like that. The rides sure themselves were warnings. Yeah, yeah it's like you can look see at him. it. Look at it. Look at this thing. It's held together with duct tape. Come it on. It reminds me of uh, when we go to the fair in our local town every every summer. Those things are rickety as shit, man. Right. It's like you're taking your life into your own hands when you go on board one of these things. That's what makes it so exciting. So I was curious what you thought. You know, because adult, you know, children aren't quite fully owned adults yet. And their kind of rights are kind of like held in escrow. And, you know, you're kind of in charge of them as a parent. So do you think that the parents who are letting their kids go to this place and potentially get hurt? And if they do get hurt, do you think the parents bear some responsibility in this? Or is this all on Johnny Knoxville, the par- the, the property owner? Wow. Way to circle back on my initial comments about yeah, you better believe it. the helicoptering and and how when we were kids, we could run around and do anything we wanted pretty much. Um, and I don't, I mean, my mom wasn't like the most responsible parent in the world, but looking back, I don't think it was that bad. And, and similar with your dad, I mean, we could have gone and done anything we wanted, right? Like if there was a park like this, we could have gone to it. We could have. It was a hands-off parenting style. We pretty much kind of raised ourselves, but th- there was some parenting involved and, you know, they kept the roof over our heads and fed us and that sort of thing. But yeah, we were kind of just like wild children. Yeah, but, but you know, I think I think you bring up a good point in that it is sort of the parents' responsibility to shepherd or steward their children or their, you know, offspring or whatever they're, whoever they're responsible for. And I, I know the positive obligations thing is like kind of this tenuous area. But, uh, you know, until you're like fully grown and that's different for everybody, right? I mean, some people could be more mentally developed at 15 than a 25-year-old, you know, Um so yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really have a good answer. I, I think that Johnny Knoxville, he probably could have done more to be safer, of course. But the whole point of the place was to not be safe. That was so fun about it. <laughs> Come here and possibly kill yourself, but you might have a blast doing it. Just like you know, going rock climbing or bungee jumping or parachuting or you know any of these other like significantly dangerous things that you, you know are potentially lethal. Yeah, and I guess you'd apply similar, you know, market forces against that like in in a voluntary society would would somebody owns the rock that someone would rock climb on because everything would be privatized right everyone would own everything would be owned uh, right. would they let a 10 year old climb it yeah would they the parent would have to sign for them i would assume at least or would the would they even would they just say no i'm sorry the liability is too great can't do it i don't know yeah another thing is uh a lot of the people going or the parents themselves could have uh sent their kids with safety stuff you know if they needed like knee pads or helmet and stuff um they didn't really have anything like that in the in the movie but i mean there's a variety of different ways you could have went around to be safe and still do dangerous things or whatever yeah, yeah. definitely they could have worn like yeah a football outfit before they got on that sled thing where they cut the brakes on that sled thing and they all fell off yeah they could have done that yeah so i want to take us into a, a slightly different area and that is when the state comes in to shut them down. They use the antiquatedness of the regulations and the laws themselves uh, to defeat those same laws. So, like, one of them was, um, you know, you don't have a permit uh, for this petting zoo. So they get this bear in there. And so now it's no longer a petting zoo. Now it's a protected species habitat or something like that. And then uh, there was another one where... I don't know if it was like a roller coaster type thing or a slide and there were regulations pertaining to the slide. But if you did this 
loop-de-loop, which wasn't in the regulation, then he could get around that. And I thought that that was pretty clever of him. And it just goes to show that like law is always trying to, or it's not even like law, it's like a legality or... It's always reactionary. Right. It's always trying to catch up. And then uh, it's, it's a race between, you know, how can you find the loopholes in the breathing room uh, within the market to still be able to do things uh, and still be productive? Yeah. <laughs> There's a, like the regulation part. It was kind of like give us an example of like a cronyism type thing because it was mainly the other park, the guy from the other park that was using the state regulations to try to close the other guy down so he could uh, take his property or whatever. And eventually, I guess, well, I don't know if we can do spoiler spoilers. But, oh, all the time. Spoiler. Uh, <laughs> the Well, at the end, they end up actually selling the park, and then there's kind of a trick to it <laughs> where they sell it, and then they just unleash all the kids to just destroy everything, and now the new owner is responsible for all the bad things that happened. <laughs> yeah, Bryce, yes. you, you bring up a fantastic point. Um, people complain about corporations not being, you know, being anti-regulation when in fact they're very, very, very pro-regulation. And we've talked about this in the past on movies like Aviator, where like the big entrenched corporation will lobby for some regulation that they where, where it's a cost that they can easily bear, but that their competition, their smaller competition, cannot so much easily bear. And it happens all the time. They most of the regulations are written with the idea that, you know, the oil industry, big executives get together and well, these are the guys that know most about the oil industry. So they should be the ones that write the regulations. And in fact, they end up writing the regulations to hurt their competition. Right. Use particular processes that they have established and make them the normal or the standard for that particular uh, market um, and, and, and or use equipment and require that that equipment be used. Right. Uh, there was a big... Uh, thing related to trucking, I think, in California, where one of the state senators had a significant interest in some company that made uh, some part that goes on these trucks that are now required in every truck that drives in California. Yeah, some regulations are even blatantly anti-small business where like, there will be a regulation that only applies once you hit a certain number of employees. So it's like incentivizing people to stay really small and not grow bigger to compete with the big boys because they can't take that cost hit once they hit that big part. So that happens a lot. It's uh, it's good times. Yeah, now I want to I dig in a little bit before we wind down. We got another 10 or 15 minutes left on the show, and this might eat up most of it. Uh, and this is the point that Bryce brought up about the spoiler at the end where Johnny Knoxville, DC, ends up selling the park to the developer. He finally gives in, but with that twist. Now, for me, I was hoping that Johnny Knoxville would not sign the paper just yet, do whatever he's going to do, and then sign the paper while it's still his property. But no, in the movie, he hems and haws on signing the thing, eventually signs it, and then when it's no longer his property, title is transferred, he signed the document, then he makes the park available to everyone to destroy. Well, it's no longer his property. So he totally violated this other guy's now property, in in my estimation, and I, I felt really let down by that. Johnny Knoxville is no Rothbard. I think, Bryce, you were saying that earlier. <laughs> yeah. uh, definitely not. Uh, he basically signed the park over, and then he just antifed the joint. Assault, destruction of property, uh, and all the rest. And he really did um, kind of make a pretty poor move there. Yeah, for some guy who says he claims to know about personal responsibility, he completely betrays that idea throughout the entire movie. I mean, he's either robbing from the other guy, or like he said, destroying that guy's property, or he's breaking into some broadcast station to switch tapes he shows no respect for private property he's a, he's a terrible role model if anybody thinks of this guy as a role model like i mean I, I don't think that's possible but as a protagonist that the audience is supposed to get behind he's constantly doing crap like this that just i can't get behind yeah i think they tried to like make his whole arc about him and his daughter and how about him like being the cool dad but somewhat aloof or in his own little world uh, focused on the park and kind of being an you know a drunk a- asshole <laughs> Or jackass. Uh, um, right. And then and he and goes then, to a trip with his daughter. Yeah, yeah, and they, they bond and connect. But, I mean, that just feels really forced, right? Like, and there's, like like I said earlier, there's no connection to the characters. It's a muddled plot. The story is just kind of barely there. But it's it's built around, like, doing these stunt things. But it loses its impact that it had when they were doing jackass-style stunts. You know, 
when it was jackasses all build up to the stunt, they do the stunt and you're like, oh my God, they were doing some crazy shit. Here, it's like, okay, weird, confusing storyline, <laughs> characters I don't care about. And then, oh, some guy in the background got, got hit in the nuts or falls off this embankment or whatever, you know, and you're like, okay, that happened. So... You know, there's like no tension in this thing. There's no consequences. Uh, anyway, Bryce, you got you got some commentary there? Uh, I guess I kind of agree with what you guys are saying. I mean, that point about uh, destroying the park after it wasn't <laughs> his anymore. That's kind of a bad play on that. But and uh, I don't I don't understand why he uh, sold it. Like, was he was his hand forced at that point? Was did he have no other options? Well, I thought he, he said didn't. he said the writing was on the wall, right? That he knew he wasn't gonna wasn't gonna last forever. Yeah, I wrote down a quote. So let me see if I find it quick. Yeah, uh, there's some, some like balloon payment on the loan, and so they uh, opened up the park and attracted more people with the commercial. And they the the numbers guy, the kid, said that they would have enough money to pay off the loan. I think. Uh, you know, yeah. Towards the end, he says something. Well, when he's talk, when he's in his grandpa form and talking to his granddaughter, she asked him why it closed or whatever, and he just said the park was doomed. Uh, with the nanny state and helicopter parents. Uh, so I just blew it up. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. So so the, the developer guy sent his son in there and said, hey, go down this ride, get injured, and I'll buy you a car. And we'll use that injury to sue the guy for millions of dollars, and that will force him to get shut down. Yeah. Okay. That's what it was. Yeah. So, I mean, the layers of the plot on this thing are like, there's too many layers for what it is, and none of it really makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, I don't know. I can appreciate the real stunts and stuff, but the story and stuff is just kind of, boy. Yeah, I did enjoy the drunk bear. I mean, that was kind of cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, they had all kinds of problems getting it over there because they built a park in South Africa or somewhere. They was trying to find a real park to play it in, but they couldn't find it because it was all too safe and whatnot. <laughs> so regulations actually prevented them from being in many of the areas they would have wanted to be in? Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> Well, Robert, what, do you think we're about that time for the final summer review? I feel like I kind of just did mine a little bit, but I could, I could do a little bit more uh, if you'd like to go first. and we go to Bryce? Okay, all right, I can, I can, I can do that. Uh, so, I don't know who this movie's for. I, I think this, this kind of humor, it, it just reminded me of Idiocracy with guy getting hit in the balls, and it seems like that. You know, he Knoxville had his audience back in the two thousands when there was like that group of kids growing up, and they really into that humor. But now it just it looks like an old man trying to do that, like an old man trying to still be hip and cool because it, it's like he's a 45 year old man or whatever, but he's doing humor that would appeal or appeal to like a 15 year old boy. And it just seems awkward and weird that he hasn't grown up and whatever. But I mean, good on him. He's an old man and he's still making movies and money and whatever. But I didn't laugh once. I, I didn't, you know, like all the problems we talked about with the plot, the, the characters didn't, were all flat. The, um yeah, it was just a big nothing burger of a movie, and uh, I can't give it a positive review. I would give it like a like a two point five, and that's being generous because of the the discussion that it inspired. I I really appreciate the whole concept. That was I thought the concept was probably the best. I'm probably gonna have done the whole show just on the concept, uh, just reading the the short description of the movie. But you know, I I'm not upset that I watched it, but I can't I can't recommend it. Uh, maybe just just listen to this episode and you'll have gotten everything you need to get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bryce, what's your uh, final summary and a uh, score of one to ten, decimal point deep, please? Uh, well, I mean, I I was kind of a moderate fan of John and Knoxville's older stuff and other similar things that were around that time. I mean, I hung out with all the people that really liked it. I was into skateboarding and all these extreme sports and whatnot. So I, I gave it a little bit of a better. <laughs> score i'd probably give it a good solid four or so i mean it's something about like real stunts with no special effects something about that i can really respect but it's a lot of them that weren't really up to par with some of the other stuff and if you look past all the vulgarity and other stuff i mean it's it was all right it was just very mediocre i thought i just thought it had these random interesting points in it I don't know if I'd recommend it. Maybe if you're a super fan of Johnny Knoxville and that type of stuff, you'd probably like it, but that's about all I got. All right. Well, uh, I'll, I'll have another go at it. And um, our last episode was on The Lord of the Rings, and I gave a pretty favorable rating. Robert gave a favorable rating. And the anarchist mom gave it a perfect 10, the first perfect 10 uh, on the show of all time. 
So I'm tempted to go the opposite direction and give the perfect zero score, but I won't. I won't actually got through this movie. There have been a few movies in the past that I've uh, started watching and I'm just like, no, this is just so bad, but not to the point where it's like so bad it's good. They were just so bad that I just stopped watching. I actually watched this all the way through. So I'm going to go with like a Robert went 2.5. I'm, I'm going to one up you 2.6. I liked it just a hair more than you. And I think that's mostly for the legacy of Johnny Knoxville. I, I did actually, in, you know, in, in their day, I enjoyed the Jackass stuff, the Jackass movies. Um, I thought those were, were pretty fun. Um, granted, you know, I was a younger person myself. Um, and I thought that the Bad Grandpa series, I think there's been two of those now. I think it's a decent progression for Johnny Knoxville to have gone that, gone that route and be less of the um, in-your-face, you know, extreme type uh, bro, you know, humor and give it a little bit more of a nuance. And I was hoping that, that they would be able to translate that into something more. And I felt like they uh, missed the mark on this one. I think that they were going for, hey, let's build an actual movie and then within the movie, throw the stunts in. But the movie plot and the story and the characters not good. And then the stunts, I'm sorry, but with no buildup and no tension to them, it's just, they kind of just happen. And then they're, they're there and you're like, okay, <laughs> so, you know, and... Uh, so it's kind of unfortunate, but I will say that uh, the premise was very good and the recommendation uh, by you to have us look at it, watch the movie and and do a show on it, I think was was like a nine. I mean, that's like there's good stuff in here. There's there's property rights. There's uh, uh, personal responsibility. We got to talk about uh, political culture, litigious society, helicopter parenting, uh, you know, and all the rest and, and uh, social media effects, ostracism and all of those. And uh, those are always interesting things. And and. You know, we've done movies in the past that have been terrible crap movies that uh, ended up being great discussions just like this one. So I, uh, I'm i happy that you brought this to us. So thank you very much, Bryce. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. All right. Well, everyone, this has uh, been the uh, the Last Nighters episode 49. You can find the show notes and more at lastnighters.com slash 49. If you want to support us on Patreon, do that at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. And Robert, I think we landed on a movie for next week. Oh, uh, yeah? And it's on Netflix, so it's freezies for us. Well, not free, but, you know, it's, like, included in our uh, pricing package here. Uh, the Outlaw King. Yeah, so, it's a fairly recent uh, retelling, kind of like Braveheart Part 2 came out, I think, just a couple of weeks ago. It tells the story of Robert the Bruce post-Braveheart and his struggles against the, uh, the King of England. So check it out. Come back right. next week. We'll be talking about it. We will be talking about it. Oh, yes, we will. And uh, so that'll be a lot of fun. And uh, I think that's about it from us over at The Last Nighters Crew. So, Bryce, thank you again for, for recommending the show and uh, coming on the show. Recommending the movie and coming on the show. How's that? That sounds better. So, again, uh, lastnighters.com slash 49. And I'll say good night from last night, everyone. All right, and we're going to continue the show for a few more minutes on the actual anarchy side of the house. Yeah, yeah. Now, are you um, are you a full blown like anarchist libertarian, or are you uh, still like minarchist type? I guess. Well, have you heard of this idea uh, panarchy with a P in the front? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I'm not sure if I understand what the nuances are, but they're trying to like say you know all these different divisions of anarchy can all sort of band together in some way. Yeah, kind of. Well, I just, I was digging into the minarchist versus anarchist debate and i was like i was thinking like why <laughs> why do minarchists need like I, I have this idea where basically i'm okay with minarchy but i think anarchists should be able to opt out basically i like the idea of it's more of a progress to get to anarchy rather than an end state i guess this this idea of basically just isolating everything the state does and then having it all funded separately and then eventually it'll wither away. Um, everything would have to be voluntary, voluntarily funded. But I guess, I mean, if you could call like a fusion between minarchy and, and anarcho-capitalism, I like the idea of, I mean, if we have minarchy, it seems like what, what harm would it do to let <laughs> like anarchists opt out and not have to support any of that or participate in any of it. And then uh, from the anarchist perspective, why would I care if someone has their own little city somewhere that's minarchy-like and I don't have to participate in it? <laughs> like, 
I guess that's basically my view summarized. Yeah, okay. I don't think I would disagree with you too much on on anything. I mean, in my you know fully free society, uh, if you wanted to have a little socialist commune, you could do that. Just leave me out of it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and it sounds like a very similar thing with with uh, how you're viewing like a city state type minarchy. Uh, now, I would be the abolitionist button pusher. Like, if there was a button that repealed the state, I would push it right now. But if we could just get to minarchy, I'd be a hell of a lot happier than I am now. But I don't think that that would be like my desired end state. I mean, it'd just be a little bit of rape versus the full on, <laughs> you know, like strip church rape thing that's happening right now. Uh, but I think it would be, you know, better than it, than what we have now if we had the true, you know, constitutional minarchy as it was intended. Uh, even though like that is overreaching in my estimation, Robert, your, your thoughts. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if there was actually a socialist place that didn't strive for world domination, but the communists and the socialists, they, they don't, they don't just leave you alone. They, they, they never do. They never can. They need the productive. <laughs> they need the productive. They need, I mean, if they made taxes voluntary tomorrow, the whole system would collapse. And I've, I think I heard Dave Smith say this, and that it's completely true because, you know, half of the people would stop playing taxes immediately, at least, if not more. And then the, the, the entire tax burden would fall onto the people that still do pay taxes. And so then half of those people would be like, I can't afford this and stop paying taxes. And then they'd fall on the next small percentage in this next month until, until everybody's like, no, I can't. I can't, I can't prop up this entire beast. So, yeah, that they can't have it be a voluntary thing. They can't just leave you alone. They have to force everybody into their system. And that's my problem. That's one of my many problems with minarchy or any kind of archy at all. On top of the idea that how are you going to keep it a minarchy? Because governments are designed by their very nature to grow. They are designed to respond to the desires of their citizens and you hire these people called politicians whose entire job it is to write laws. And every time you write a law, you increase the size of the state every time. And that's entire, their entire job is to just write laws. Their entire job is to increase the size of the state. If you're to say that, well, I just want this night watchman state that, where I'm only going to have socialism for common defense. Well, you can have private common defense. People band together in times of need all the time. But I just don't see it ever happening. So, I mean, maybe there could be a place where people, you know, can figure it out. But I, 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 it doesn't make any sense to me. And if, if there were socialist places or little minarchies that, you know, would leave you alone, okay. But I would oppose them on moral grounds because you're, you're, you're not only deciding for everybody that lives in a certain area, you're also deciding for the children, those that haven't even been born yet, that they are going to be forced into this system whether they want to or not, it's, it's immoral fund, fundamentally. And it's, it's, it's propagated through force, which is also immoral. So, Yeah, that's actually a lot of good stuff to think about. Like I said, I'm still kind of exploring ideas still. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, definitely not an enemy of anarcho-capitalism. I mean, I even consider myself one sometime, but I kind of don't know. <laughs> that's interesting ideas to think about just alternatives and whatnot yeah how to get there i don't know man it's <laughs> if we knew we'd be doing it <laughs> yeah we're, we're doing what we can have a little dumb little show about movies <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and uh, bryce you had mentioned earlier that you had a bunch of notes so do you have anything outstanding on your list that is a point or two that uh is a, is worthy of additional discussion uh I think we mostly covered it. Uh, I wrote down a bunch of random quotes. Some of them are more paraphrases than quotes, but uh, a lot of it's just related to how the this idea that the park was on private property, but it was advertised as this chaos, but like in a good way, <laughs> and it was succeeding kind of until government regulations tore it down, basically, I guess, and some guy bought it out. Um, some well, most of the quotes and stuff we went over, I guess. Uh, a lot of the theme was to, one of the quotes was something about making your own fun. I wrote down the honest engine thing that we talked about. <laughs> uh, oh, there was a quote here where he said, "Those days were different. Not so many rules. Kids could be kids doing things they might regret." 
And a lot of those aren't exact quotes. I kind of just scribbled down. Well, you know, let's jump off on that one because I actually think that's an interesting one. And I'm sure Robert will have something to say on this. But I mean, you almost need to go through experiences that are difficult or hard or where you risk injury or even get injured as part of your learning experience, as part of your development. You know, you learn so much more from failure. You learn to not do certain things again or, or how to hone your craft or whatever. And I feel like when people have that taken away from them or, or they're protected from everything, they're protected from anything that might hurt them physically or emotionally, then they can't more fully develop and become more complete people. Robert, your take on that? Yeah, absolutely. And um, you need to be able to make, you need to be left alone to make your own mistakes. You need to be left alone to negotiate and learn how to live in this world because mommy and daddy aren't always going to be there. Um, this helicopter phenomenon seems to be, like, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting conflux of influences from, you know, the way the, the boomers parented and, the, you know, a, a rejection of that, a rejection of the you know, kind of corporal punishment style of the boomers and this, I, the, the nature of there being just fewer kids. So back in the day, you might have had, you know, five or six or seven or eight kids. And they kind of just kind of ran around the house and kind of like educated themselves and learned how to be human beings. And you couldn't watch over them all the time. And then if you, you know, if you lost one, yeah, it's a horrific tragedy, but you still got five more. Whereas today <laughs> when there's people are having one or two kids, I mean, the birth rate's just down at the floor in a modern Western society. Europe and the United States are like dying off. And so you've got like couples with one kid and yeah, they're all their entire focus and is on this one kid and super protective eggshell around this one little kid. It's a big difference from having, you know, a giant family where everybody kind of looks over each other. And, you know, your older sister maybe is more of your you know parental figure when you're out in the wild as opposed to this one kid and never letting them out of your sight because he's so precious to you that you just can't, you know, bear it if you lost that one kid because then your life is totally empty. And you don't have a kid anymore as opposed to when you have like 10 kids and you lost one and it's horrific and you feel terrible about it, but you got nine more that you got to take care of and you better buck up and get your life straight and mourn and get over it because you've got a whole bunch of other people that still need you. It's... So I think it's partially due to people not having enough sex. So we need to get it on it. <laughs> Start getting well, it on. That's an interesting theory, but you know, I, I think it might actually have some legs to it because um, I know you know we've got two kids, so it's replacement, right? Like there's two of us and there's two kids, so you know evens out. Uh, but I know that we would be overwhelmed if we had another one or, or or more, and and it would almost be like as much attention as you can even provide is not enough, and so. It's just out of necessity that the kids need to be more autonomous or more like interconnected with each other, learning from each other as opposed to strictly with the parents, whereas when it's just one or two kids, it's a lot more, you know, hands-on uh, time with the parents and a lot more of the, um, I don't want to say coddle, but yeah, the smaller class size kind of phenomenon. So the kids aren't like we're learning from each other. Now, our kids, they, they do teach each other things all the time, usually bad things like how to get out of the, get over the gate and almost fall down the stairs or... <laughs> You know, try to run at the couch really hard, uh, smash their face into the couch, which they enjoy doing. But I, I try to tell them it's made out of wood. If you get past that cushion, you know, this is this is gonna be a problem. But uh, yeah, I, I I do think that uh, the number of kids that generationally people have had in the past versus now that probably is a factor in kind of this phenomena of helicopter parenting and, and how much attention uh, each individual kid gets. Well, yeah, because you used to have to have a whole bunch of kids, right? Like a farmer would have like 10 kids because, you know, two or three might die in childbirth and two more would get the flux and die and, you know, only the strong would survive. But these days, you know, we got great medicine that keeps the kids alive and the infant mortality rates really low. So you're generally going to have that kid live and you generally don't need to have more kids. And having a kid is a really expensive thing, too, as well. But I, st I think people need to have more sex. I think people are afraid that there's a finite, you know, it's the whole Malthusian argument that there's too many people in the world and people don't realize that innovation creates more. There's, there's, we will come up with things. We, we, have, we can't predict what's going to happen because it's impossible to predict the market, but every human being is born with a brain and two hands and they will innovate and create the things that you couldn't even imagine today. In 20 or 30 years, the world will be even more different than it is 
today than it was 30 years ago. And you'll have no idea and we'll have more resources than ever. So what the answer is, is more people, not less people. All right, take we'll we'll take your uh, your comments, Bryce, and then I think we'll wind this one down and perhaps get into some Kathleen Turner Override, which is available for our Patreon supporters at actualanarchy.com slash Patreon. Uh, I don't know if I have much else to say. Um, <laughs> there's uh, there was one point I remember the part in the movie where there was uh, where they had to start their petting zoo. They kind of just caught all their own animals. That kind of reminded me of uh, as a kid. I was like the nerdy kid that collected bugs and took them to school for show and tell. <laughs> but uh, that was an interesting point. But other than that, I think we covered like the movie pretty thoroughly. There's... All right. Well, we are kindred spirits because uh, Robert and I, I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, but we used to go down to this uh, pond and catch frogs. And that was like one of the things that we used to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, memories, <laughs> Ren and Stimpy would say. Anyway, uh, this has been a lot of fun. So thanks again. And thank you, actually, Anarchy audience for sticking with us. This has been episode, what is it, 106? That's right, 106. So show notes more to actualanarchy.com slash 106. Uh, next week, we're going to do The Outlaw King. You can find that on Netflix. Uh, if, if you're interested, watch it beforehand. And then when we release that episode next uh, Sunday, listen to it right away. You know, like have lots of fun with us and uh, we'll see you then. And then uh, after that, I think we do a Christmas movie. Uh, I'm trying to nail Robert down on uh, what we're going to do. but um, Help, he's nailing me down. <laughs> Yes, it's true. Yes. Literally, literally. All right, everyone. Well, uh, thanks again. And uh, we'll get into some Kathleen Turner Overdrive. So peace out, everyone. Good night. Take care. See you. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do